Welcome to the RYR Endurance Team Podcast. We are grateful that you've chosen to tune in and listen. If you are a runner, aspiring runner, triathlete, or aspiring triathlete, you are in the right place. We love sharing what we know about these sports. If you like what you hear, you can always learn more by contacting us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or by visiting our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening. Good evening, girlfriend. What's up, Mr. Larry Dean Roberts? Not much. How was your 4th of July? It was outstanding. We had a church picnic on Saturday. And of course, we're early birds. So before the fireworks ever went off, we were home and in bed. But it was nice seeing everyone at the church picnic. And then today, family was at the pool all day long. And it was just a blast. Although, I will say, the pizza was messed up for lunch. But evidently, it still tasted good. I don't know. I didn't have any. It's unusual for us to order pizza on a Sunday. We never order pizza. But we did today. We did. We were going to eat a very quick, light lunch because we were grilling tonight for the fireworks. So what did you have for lunch? (laughs) I had Fage, 0% fat Greek yogurt for my protein. And I had some cinnamon mixed in with that. And I had a little bit of almond butter mixed in with that. And then I had my famous gluten-free, sugar-free bread that I make. Your banana bread. I think that's what we've called that on previous podcasts. Yes. So that's what I had for lunch. And I had my usual salad. If you can call it usual because it's massive. Yeah. The bowl the size of our swimming pool salad. (laughs) So we ordered pizza, but we didn't eat it. We didn't. But we're trying to find something our kids will enjoy. And my mom. My mom loves pizza. Yeah. And Ellie Ann's not old enough for pizza yet. So she had... What did she have for lunch? She had a sweet potato. And she had watermelon and grapes. Yummy stuff. So at the church picnic last night, we were talking about putting mustard on watermelon. We were not talking about that. Some people at our table were talking about that. I was part of that conversation. Oh, I was not part of that conversation. So one of them tried it and said, it's not bad. She didn't take another bite of it. No. It's not like she went and got all the mustard and all the watermelon and thought, hmm, this is what I'm going to eat tonight. Yeah, I'm not a huge mustard fan, although I really do like watermelon. I'm not going to try that. Are you a salt or no salt on your watermelon? Salt. I'm definitely no salt. You like salt on everything. I do like salt on everything, but not on watermelon, not on fruit. Himalayan pink salt. It's the best. So there's a couple things I wanted to talk about before we jump into our podcast. I try to keep up on the latest in technology news as part of my job. And I came across the Little Tykes Pelican Explore and Fit cycle. This is like a play on the word Peloton. It is. That's pretty sharp of you to notice that. So what's our grandbaby going to get for Christmas? Well, it's for ages three to seven. Yeah, but she's gifted. She's a gifted grandbaby. Well, let's just wait a couple more years. (laughs) But anyway, it looks a little bit like the Peloton, except it's the one I saw. I believe it was white. And they have videos that go along to encourage the 
toddlers to pedal and learn to count and stuff. So it's pretty clever idea, a play on words, Pelican and Peloton. It's pretty cool. So yeah, I could see one of those in Ellie future because her mom likes to ride the Echelon, which is very similar to the Peloton. They could just work out side by side. Side by side. Although sometimes I think that Echelon also serves as a nice little mommy break for Shelby too. She needs that sometimes. Everyone does. <laughs> And there was something else I saw in the news this week that I thought was really interesting. A company called Klein Vision, which is a Slovakian company, they have developed an air car, a flying car. And there was a video that went along with this news article, and it showed this plane taking off on the runway and flying, just like any other plane. But when it landed 35 miles away at the next airport, it came to a stop and it folded its wings up and just drove right off the airport downtown to find a parking spot. Now that's pretty cool. It reminds me of the Back to the Future movie, Roads, where we're going. We don't need roads. (laughs) I did not remember that, but yeah, that was a pretty good show. Although, and I've told you this before, I don't think it will ever be a thing that the general population gets in a car and flies to the Walmart instead of driving to the Walmart because you can't really create lanes and roads and stop signs in the sky, so it would be a disaster. Yeah, so helicopters today have to have a special place to land. You and special training. Yeah, you wouldn't to see fly. A, Yeah, you wouldn't see a helicopter landing at Walmart. Well, I'm just saying, I don't believe air travel is going to become the common man way of travel. <laughs> Probably not. But I guess something else in the news that I haven't really kept up a whole lot with is the the billionaires who are going to fly to outer space. Are you on that list? No, I'm not oh, a billionaire oh, yet. Wait, we're not billionaires. Hmm. Interesting thing going on. Well, let's talk about today's podcast. Let's talk about it. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, we have a special guest we're going to be interviewing. It is Coach Mike Hilliard from the University of Southern Indiana. And he's uh, he's got quite the history at the University of Southern Indiana, the Screaming Eagles. He's in his 25th season as the cross-country and track coach. And he's been named the Great Lakes Valley Coach of the Year in either track, cross-country, men's or women's, 28 times. 28 times in 25 years. Right. Some in track and some in cross-country. But that's still very impressive. So he must have gotten both in the same year before. Yeah, yeah. Besides his coaching career, personally, he was an All-American in the steeplechase. That is a really difficult event. Yeah, which is interesting, and, and we'll find out more, but steeplechase wasn't even his background going into collegiate sports. Yeah. Well, let's bring Mike on to the podcast. Let's do it. So welcome, Mike. We're glad to have you on the program. Uh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, it was a uh, good fortune that you sent me a Facebook request when you did, because I was just talking to my son and saying, I'd really like to get in touch with Mike Hillard and get him on our podcast. Appreciate you reaching out. For sure. So tell us a little bit about yourself prior to becoming the coach at USI. Well, I I grew up about an hour west of USI, and in, in Southern Illinois. Grew up on a farm, not 
really a lot to do in Norris City, Illinois, if you don't play basketball. And I, I tried that and uh, was mediocre at best. And halfway through my high school career, I realized that running was something that came a little more natural to me. My dad had competed as a miler in high school. And my first goal was to break a school record, which um, I had one year to do that because our school shut down and consolidated with another. So long story short, my freshman year, I missed his school record by a half second. The next year, I ran 25 seconds faster, but his school record at Enfield High School will stand for eternity. <laughs> so, <close. laughs> so yeah, uh, went to Southeast Missouri State in Cape Girardeau, Missouri for three years, had a great experience there. Uh, my coach there at the time was Bill Gautier, who's a Henderson, Kentucky native. Uh, he ran at Western Kentucky. After three years there, he took another job at Tennessee Chattanooga. He's since retired. And also our athletic department let us know that they were transitioning to D1. So that meant a two-year moratorium on any conference championship, NCAA championship, any postseason. So if I redshirted a year, essentially I would never run another championship meet in my collegiate career. So Bill Stegemolder, the coach at USI, had a hard time telling him no three years earlier when I decided to go to SEMO. Um, so my first call was to Bill and I said, hey, things have changed here. I, I want to come to USI. So, you know, my top two college choices, I was fortunate enough to get to compete and attend school at both of those and had uh, great experiences both places. So after I graduated, took a job as an elementary PE teacher in the Chicago suburbs. I spent one year there. It took me about six weeks of that year to decide that I did not want to do this for the rest of my professional career. So at the end of that year, I came back, was a volunteer assistant with Bill for a year. The next year, Tammy Nolan uh, resigned as the women's coach because her and Jim Nolan were raising a young family. Their first child, Trent Nolan, ended up competing for us at USI. And another one of their boys, Austin Nolan, is still on our team and ran 1358 for 5,000 meters during the indoor season last year. So I tell Austin all the time, you know, that I have his mother to thank for, in part, for me being able to be here in this position now. That's great. Yeah. So were you a farmer growing up? Well, you know, I grew up on a farm family. My dad, you know, has since told me after I've grown up that he didn't really want me to follow in their footsteps because small time farmers, we farmed about 800 acres. Those, you know, the only farmers that farm 800 acres are ones that just do it because they enjoy it. They're not making money doing it. Slowly, uh, you know, all the small farms in Southern Illinois were squeezed out. We were one of them. Uh, my dad ended up taking a job in construction, built bridges and dams and schools, did that for the next 15 or 17 years before he retired. But he certainly didn't want me going down that road because, he, you know, he knew that the future of our family farm was was what it was. So um, spent a lot of time around the farm as a kid. You know, by the time I got into high school and old enough to drive a tractor, you know, they were starting to transition out of that. So, yeah. So other than your two dogs, tell us a little bit about your family. So my wife, Jessica, and I, we've been married for 11 years. We live on the north side of Evansville in the McCutcheonville area. Growing up in a rural setting, I felt pretty confined living in a suburb type community on the east side. I needed some room to breathe. So we found this property on the north side with two acres in the woods. And uh, we love it up here. We have three daughters. We're a blended family. 
The youngest of the three is, is my daughter, Madison, and she is a senior at USI now. The other two have graduated and are out in, out in the real world. So we are, we're empty nesters at this point. It's not a bad thing, is it? No, it's not. It's not a bad thing. There's, there's a lot of positives for sure. We were empty nesters and then our daughter, Bethany, moved back from South Florida a few years back. So she moved back in with us for a little while, but she has since bought her own home and we're full-blown empty nesters again. <laughs> yeah. It's weird when they're gone and then they come back for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just, I think it's just awkward for everybody. <laughs> yeah, she made it pretty easy though. She's a she's yeah. easy to get along with. Yes. So, are your girls in the Evansville area? So, our oldest, Alex, she works for Chico State University in Chico, California. She has been out there for a little over three years. Brady, uh, our middle daughter, lives in Evansville, and then uh, of course Madison, the youngest, is is in Evansville and attending USI. Yeah. Is your wife a runner? She runs because it's the most efficient way to stay in shape on a limited amount of time. She's done the Evansville half marathon three times, done a lot of 5Ks. I think she's followed that and set some goals because it's always been a passion of mine. And she wanted, you know, to kind of be involved in that. She enjoys running, but it's certainly not a lifestyle for her like it was for me for as an athlete was for 30 plus years and still continues to be as a coach. So you mentioned the Evansville half and <laughs> oh boy, here we go. My two best <laughs> half marathons were at the Evansville half and I didn't know it at the time, but in both of those, you were two places ahead of me. <laughs> so I ran a 119 and you were, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds ahead of me one year and so the next year I sped up and ran a 117 and you ran a 115. (laughs) uh, Anyway, Maybe my only goal was to stay two places ahead of you. Could be. (laughs) That's always a just a great race over there. Yeah yeah absolutely it's certainly one that I was certainly one that I miss you know being able to participate in. So another great race is the night flight that you're putting on July 31st at your campus, USI? Yes, we've had a few uh, campus planning meetings this week to get all of our ducks in a row. And it was a pretty late decision to have it up until three or four weeks ago. I, I didn't think it would be possible. We still had mask mandates on campus. We were very limited uh, with what we were able to do. And this will actually be the first public outdoor large event that has been held on the campus since pre-COVID. So hoping we don't screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Dean and I met in middle school, but our junior year, we started dating again. And I vaguely remember that one of our very first car dates, he drove me over to USI and did a race. The Snowflake Derby. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That uh, was the, I believe... I believe the first race I ever did at USI, if you remember, was the ISUE, and that tells you how long ago it was, uh, Citizens Bank 5K and 15K. It was a springtime event. Uh, we don't hold that one anymore. There's so many springtime events in Evansville that it just got kind of difficult to, to, to make it viable to have it. But Snowflake, we still host. Of course, we weren't able to last year, but it'll be back this year. And um, that was one of the first, I think the second event that I ever ran at USI. And 
good story about that event. Uh, I think I was 15 years old and a former USI ISUE athlete named Brett Brewer was in the race. And I found myself in a pack with him and Everett Whiteside, who was one of my big high school rivals from Mount Vernon, Illinois, and myself. Well, Everett and I got a few steps ahead of Brett. I got a few steps ahead of Everett. I made a wrong turn. And as you know, that course gets pretty deep in the woods. I made a wrong turn. Brett didn't say anything. He just let the rookie go wandering in the woods to, to get a lead on me. And Everett saw Brett go the other way and followed him. And I ended up catching him at the end. But uh, I guess now I would just probably said something to him about like, you know, could maybe give me the courtesy. But I was I was young and scared. Was kind of I was kind of scared of the guy, so I didn't bring it up. First, you got no force. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah. But you said you caught you caught them. Yeah, I did. I mean, I ended up losing about I don't know maybe ten seconds or so, and glanced over my shoulder and realized there was nobody behind me, and knew I hadn't dropped him that much. So backtracked and figured it out pretty quickly. <laughs> and then you had somebody to follow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So do you remember one race or one workout or, or one season when you really knew you were talented as a runner? You mentioned starting running in high school. I was in the eighth grade when I really started running a little bit. My freshman year, my first cross-country meet, I think, and, and it was a short course at Norris City, Illinois. I want to say I ran just under 20 minutes for two, just under 2.9 miles. So not real spectacular. And there were probably, I probably finished 20th out of 30 people in the race. Later on that season, uh, we came back to a meet there about four or five weeks later, and I ran 17 flat. That was a pretty big breakthrough for me. Really, the biggest difference, I think, was not so much physical, but just mental, learning how to compartmentalize pain, put, you know, and kind of put that to the side and keep my mind focused on the race at hand. And I can remember to this day that the entire race, every time I inhaled and exhaled, I would say to myself, I feel great. I feel great. Not vocally. But in my mind, that's the phrase that I would repeat over and over and over. And, you know, it resulted in a, a two minute PR in a, in a matter of weeks. There, there's no way from a physical standpoint that I had made that big of a jump. But but that's when I realized that, you know, if, if I do, if I ever did have any kind of talent, it was it had more to do with a, just an ability to focus than than anything else. Because yeah. and, and really. I think the thing that drew me to running was it forced me to focus. Now, if, if I were in middle school today, I would almost guarantee that my parents would, they would be encouraged to put me on attention deficit medication because I was, I was that kid. I was always in trouble in class. I couldn't pay attention. I couldn't sit still. The house that my dad built, the white ceilings were covered with my fingerprints as long as soon as I could jump high enough to touch the ceiling, I was just running through the house, jumping and touching the ceiling and drove my mom crazy. But so I was that kid, you know, it was, it was a good outlet for my energy, but it also was like very calming for me, you know, because it, it forced me to focus on something for an extended period of time. So I know this was probably later, much later, but 
when and why did you jump into triathlon? Well, um, you know, I was approaching 40 years old. I think I did one when I was around 35 or 36, just, just for fun. And I, I, I was, I think I was probably around 40, 40, 41 before I did another one. I knew that my best running days were behind me and it was getting more difficult to run 70 to 80 miles a week, which I felt like I needed to do if I wanted to continue to run at a pretty high level. You know, I, when, when I was running marathons, I would average 90 to 105 miles a week during a buildup and and I could handle that. But I started having some mechanical issues, which I found out years later was because my left hip needed to be replaced, which that happened a year and a half ago. But I didn't realize that that was what was forcing me into it. But that's what was forcing me into it. You know, I could still go out and train 14, 15 hours a week, which I really enjoyed. It was therapeutic for me, but I couldn't run more than five hours a week, you know, without my hip feeling tight all the time. And I would go get active release and it would feel great for a week. And then it was right back to square one. And that's all because my hip socket, which should have looked like this, looked like this. It was just worn out. So my hip wasn't staying in place. All the tendons would just grab on. So I did a few trail races uh, because running on soft surface didn't bother this much, but trying to run a half marathon or a marathon or even a 10K on the roads, it just wasn't happening anymore. But if I could find something else, you know, where I wasn't on my feet as much, and it was a new challenge, you know, I could set new goals. I could actually PR every now and then, you know, because it was, it was all new to me. And then, you know, I got involved with the Southern Indiana triathlon team and they're just a great group of folks. I made a lot of new friends outside of running. That's kind of how I got started. Did you have any background in swimming? None. And if you look at my race results, that's pretty evident. Mm-hmm. I, 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 thought, I thought that I was a pretty good swimmer until I entered my first triathlon. And then I realized what good swimming is. No, I never could figure it out. I swam with the, you know, with the master's group in Newburgh for a while. My feet don't dorsiflex from years of running, and I, I, my feet were never trained to do that in the first place. They're literally like knives jamming in the water like this, and the harder I would try to kick, the more I would put the brakes on. You know, So I could train in the pool with a pull buoy and swim significantly faster with a pull buoy than trying to kick. So if it wasn't a wetsuit legal race, I had no chance whatsoever. Yeah, Dean actually goes backward if he's only using the kickboard. I do too. I, I, I do too. But here, ironically, after not running for over a year after my hip surgery, my wife Jessica and I, we went down to the Smoky Mountains last year in the middle of COVID, found a campground in the middle of nowhere and just got away for a few days. So at the little pool there at the campground, I decided just to do some kicking drills And for the first time in my life, I could actually move through the water with my feet because I hadn't ran for a year, you know, and all of those tendons that had been trained, you know, for flexion at a different angle had loosened up and I was able to do it. Now that (laughs) triathlon career is over, I can kick. (laughs) (laughs) What have been some of your favorite personal athletic performances? Oh, uh, certainly uh, earning All-American status while I was in college in steeplechase, comparing myself to the athletes of today is 
there's no comparison whatsoever. You know, I, I ran nine minutes and 13 seconds in the steeple, which got me into the national meet. And on a slow, cold, windy night in North Texas, I ran 930 in a tactical race and kicked for fifth. You have to run 855 just to get into the D2 national meet today. You know, at a time of 913, which I think ranked me 11th in the country going in, would probably put me about 50th. Things have certainly changed a lot. I was fortunate to be born when I was and be in the race that I was, you know, on that night where I could, uh, wasn't a fast pace. I was always a pretty good closer. I could hang around and kick and it, it kind of worked out. So that was, that was a, certainly a memorable one for me. My, I ran my marathon PR in 95 at the Fox Cities Marathon in Appleton, Wisconsin, around 225. Going in, I'd run one marathon before I ran. Right after my college career was over, I, on a whim, I decided five weeks before the St. Louis Marathon that I was going to do my first marathon. And the only fluids I took in during the race was water. I took in zero calories. <laughs> and at mile 17, I thought that the marathon was easy. And it my last 5K took me 31 minutes. <laughs> I did a lot more walk in the last 5K than anything else. And crap burned into a 239. So uh, a couple of years later, I took another shot and ran 225 and ended up being my, my lifetime best. That was probably top two for me as, as an athlete. So how did you feel in that one? Well, uh, goo, power gel, you know, those things were, were new. Even looking back now, I think I was probably way under fueled. I think I used three goos during the race and then I had two bottles. I was able to get my bottles on the elite table. So um, I think I had Cytomax, which was big at the time uh, in, in two of those bottles and the others were just water. So probably 450 calories uh, for that marathon, which knowing my caloric needs now that's probably half of what I needed. Didn't know a lot. Most of us didn't in, in the nineties. Yeah. That's a really impressive marathon time. And, and talking about the steeplechase, that is such a tough event. The only time I ever competed in the steeplechase was at a, uh, a track camp at Indiana university when I was in high school. And I don't know how I ended up in the steeplechase, but that was just so tough. Yeah. We've had a pretty good reputation and history with the steeplechase partly because I have an affinity for it. And I also feel like it's an event where at a lot of other college programs, it's kind of a throw off event. You can't score for us in the 10K or you can't score for us in the 5K or 1500. We'll just make you into a steeplechaser. But I, I look at it, you know, completely opposite way. If we have a really good athlete and they have some athleticism and they can hurdle pretty efficiently, their timing's pretty good then we'll move into the steeplechase, even if it's the best athlete on our roster, because those are the types of talents that can place in the top three or win a national title. So were you a hurdler in high school? No, absolutely not. And I actually, I spent a lot of time working on hurdles and I could hurdle very well doing drills with no one else around me. But when I got into a tight pack of athletes, I had a really difficult time with it. So I actually ended up stepping a lot more barriers than I hurdled. I would literally just tap the top of it and write down like it was a, like it was a water barrier, except it didn't push off. And I found that I actually lost less ground and was able to maintain my place and not lose any ground doing that. 
was also a limiting factor for me. I, I don't feel like you can run under nine minutes in the steeple running it that way. I've never seen anyone do it. So I was only able to run as fast as I did because I was able to figure that out. But by the same token, I don't think I could have ran <laughs> faster because I didn't hurt them. So are you training for anything now? After hip replacement, running is out of the question. I've tried to run three times since I had the hip replacement just to feel that sensation again. Not, you know, I think I ran two kilometers once a mile another time and two and a half miles another time. My orthopedic surgeon told me that if I really wanted to run, that was okay. But also there would be a good chance that I'd be back on his operating table in the next 10 years. And I don't really want to go through that again. I just bike. Uh, normal weeks, about 230 to 280 miles. Usually ride six days a week, usually about 12 to 14 hours a week. I enjoy the bike. Uh, last year, obviously, there weren't many race opportunities anywhere. Hoping to do a few races later this summer and uh, early fall. The downside of cycling is most of the events that you can find are crits. And I don't like crits. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I've never been to a crit when I didn't see a lot of people lose a lot of skin. And I always tell my wife that I have a, I'm extremely allergic to tarmac. I was brought out in a bad rash when I come into contact with it. Uh, and she's seen it. She doesn't like it either. But I, I understand there's supposed to be a gravel event um, just across the river from Owensboro in, uh, in August. I haven't so, heard. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw it on Facebook a few months ago. I don't know if it's, you know, uh, still something that's going to happen or not, but I, I think it's in that area where I think there's a, there's a gravel group ride there every weekend. I like gravel for a couple of reasons. You know, number one, it's, it's not a crit. You've got plenty of space to move. And number two, there aren't a lot of cars to have to deal with. I'm allergic to tarmac is about the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping to find some time trial events in the area yeah. at some point. I'm not in the best shape to go out and do a time trial, but I, I just think it would be fun. Yeah. You know, we used to have a, a time trial series here in Evansville that the tri team put on called Hammerfest. It was in Hatfield a few years, and then it was, it was out in uh, Bluegrass a few miles from our house for a few years, but they haven't done that for a while. And I don't know if they still do the time trial series in Owensboro or not. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I know, I know four or five years ago, that was a thing. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about your coaching career just a little bit at USI. So you're in your 25th season as the cross country and track coach, and you've been named the Great Lakes Valley Conference Coach of the Year 28 times. That's pretty good coaching career. What have been some of your keys to success in consistently being a conference and national contender? One thing that our conference has always allowed is that you can run an unlimited number of athletes at the conference championships. Now, there's been a push in the last few years. Some coaches want to limit that to, to maybe eight runners, 10 runners. But as long as we've been allowed to run as many as we can, we take everyone to the conference championship that's not redshirting or is not injured every single one of them. And that sounds like such a little thing, but I really think that it's paid dividends, you know, for us because in any given year we'll have an athlete that might've been 14th or 15th on our team the previous season that ends up being in our top five or top seven the following year. 
you know, so when they get to have that experience, number one, they've been in the championship environment. They know what that's like. And number two, they know what it feels like to win. It's an addictive feeling. If we can stoke that fire when they're really not in the mix yet and, you know, for them to be inspired to want to come back and be a bigger part of it. I think that's been a really big key to, you know, to our uh, longevity and, you know, be able to put together some pretty long streaks. Yeah. And you've had quite a few All-Americans as well. We've, we've had, uh, I don't, I don't really know what that number is. Um, you know, if you count number of athletes that have had All-American that have been an All-American, I'm not sure, but total All-American awards, you know, like, well, for instance, Johnny Guy had 14 of them. He had, (laughs) Heather Cooks, he had nine. You know, we've had a lot of kids that were multiple time All-Americans. That number is probably close to 200, you know, honors uh, when you combine. Again, some of those kids earned a lot of them themselves. You know, I I love Division II because, you know, at the Division II level, we can take an athlete like, I'll use Dustin Emmerich as an example. Dustin, Dustin still holds our school record in the 10K. He ran 2833. Johnny Guy ran 2834 a couple of years ago and just missed that. But Dustin was a 932 two-miler out of high school, which is pretty good. But he's not even going to get a walk-on spot at a Big Ten program. You know, if you don't run 9-0, you're not even going to be a walk-on material. You know, I know right now at Notre Dame, if you don't run 410 sub-9, they don't have a walk-on spot for you. You know, so he there's a lot of places he would not have even been able to get an opportunity. Yet at the Division II level, you know, that first rung on the ladder for him to be able to be all conference was really attainable for him as a freshman, you know, and then the next year to run a qualifying mark for the national championships. And then two years later on 2833, that first rung on the ladder, a lot of times if you're in over your head, when it's so far up there that you can't reach it, you get kind of jaded and disenchanted and you kind of lose hope when those first couple of rungs are attainable you kind of stay excited about it, you know, and you want to reach for more. And, and he was, he was one of those kids, you know, we, I remember talking with him, you know, his senior year, you know, that, you know, he couldn't have been a walk-on at Illinois. He couldn't have been a walk-on at Indiana, but when he ran 28:33, that was, and still is faster than the school record at Indiana, you know, out of high school, he never even would have had an opportunity to get into a practice. At the division two level, there's really no limit to how good you can be. Johnny Guy ran 1339 his senior year and was leading the Mount Sac relays with 200 meters to go when he ran that. There's really no limit to the top end of what you can do, but to get your foot in the door and be competitive right away is a lot, lot more attainable for most kids. So when you're recruiting high school athletes into your program, what do you look for? If there's one area where I've learned the most over the course of my career, that's definitely it. You know, when, when I first started coaching, you know, I was naive and thought anybody with good running credentials will, will take them. And most of the time in this sport, that's true because what it takes to be successful in this sport builds a lot of character, you know, and it takes a lot of discipline, you know, so nine times out of 10, the kids that are running fast enough to be part of a college program, nine times out of 10, they are good students. They're, they're good people from good families good, solid backgrounds, values, all of those things. But that is not always the case. Those things certainly matter. You know, that that said, I would say that probably 50% of the people that end up on the team here are people that reached out to me first. And that's probably true in most programs because 
first of all, you know that 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 person has already sort of selected your school as somewhere they may want to go. So you're already like 10 steps ahead of just cold calling a kid and trying to tell them about your school when they've never heard of you. That's a much bigger sell. So I'd say it's probably 50-50, you know, with kids that reached out to us first. And we have, in any given year, probably 75% of our incoming freshmen are walk-ons because we we operate with about 3.2 scholarships per gender. So that's six, about six and a half scholarships total for the men's and women's program. And we have 34 men and 28 women on the roster for this fall. So 60 plus kids on a little over six scholarships. So no one's on a full, you know, those six scholarships are spread out over about 15 guys and 15 girls, well over half of our roster is, you know, they're, they're still walk-ons, but a lot of those kids will transition from walk-ons to being on scholarship. The following year, we have four returning girls on the team next fall that over the last year have gone from walk-on to scholarship of our top guys, Wyatt Harmon. He ran 30-15 in the 10K this spring at our conference meet and 14-30 indoors for 5K. He was a 10-09 two-miler out of high school. You know, on paper, really didn't have great credentials, but he was a 4.0 GPA kid. High school coach said nothing but great things about his work ethic, his character, everything else. Grady Wilkinson was the same way. He's he's run uh, 1437 for 5K. He didn't break 10 minutes in high school. Chase Broughton is probably the best example. Now, Chase was my assistant coach for a very short time. He was a five-time All-American here at USI, ran four flats. Four flat point two was the 1,600-meter split on our distance medley relay at the Indoor National Championships. Ran 805 for 3,000 meters, 850-something in the steeplechase. His high school mile PR was 443, and he ran 202 in the 800. I remember his visit, you know, like it was yesterday. Just incredibly impressed with him, you know, as, as a person, impressed with his family, his desire to want to be a part of this. And, you know, he, he ended up being one of the best we've ever had. Now he's the head coach at Bellarmine University and has an incredible freshman class coming in next year. You know, so that, that same work ethic and drive and determination that, that got him to that level uh, is, is going to carry over to his coaching career as well. That's exciting to, uh, to watch your athletes mature and succeed athletically, but then also succeed professionally as well. And you mentioned athletes reaching out to you wanting to join the program I mean that says a lot about the program but do you think the cross-country course that USI has is a draw to some of the athletes it could be you know some of the kids have competed at Angel Mounds when they were in high school we used to have a course on our campus that we ran the regionals and nationals on but because of the NCAA requirements for 700 plus meters to the first turn course width a lot of those things we cannot accommodate on our course on campus anymore because of continued construction on our intramural fields and paved bike paths, all good positive things for the school, but kind of forced us to move the course to Angel Mounds. What I will say is a big draw for us because it kind of offsets the biggest glaring thing that we don't have, and that's a track facility on campus. What we do have, you know, is we have 1,400 acres of campus land. You know, so as a distance runner, you know, there are a lot of colleges that we recruit against where they'll run from campus every day. And in the first mile of the run, they go through four stoplights. 
And you can be a student athlete at USI for four years and never get stopped at a stoplight, you know, because we have the Burdette bike path that takes you three miles out to the river bottoms and you can get on country roads from there. Or if you want to run on your long run all on grass and trails, you can do that on campus. So I would say the course on campus, which still exists, we just don't compete on it anymore. It's certainly a point that I sell. I think it is a big draw and, and you know, having that soft surface option every day certainly has contributed to the success that we've had. It's hard to train if you're hurt, you know. Definitely. I always try to tell kids, you know, the biggest key to success is just staying healthy for a long period of time. It's not banging out two or three great workouts that are way over your head. It's just being pretty good for a pretty long block of time. And it's something that we talk to our athletes about as well is patience and consistency, incremental gains over time mm-hmm. and uh, things will work out great. Yeah. It, it, the, the hardest thing from a psychological standpoint to deal with with athletes is when you know that they're putting in really good, solid work. And, and, and we all want that payoff much sooner than realistically it's going to happen. So, so you may be running workouts, you know, at a level that indicates you can run 1430 for 5k, but it might be a year before that finally comes to fruition, you know? So you're right. You know, it, it's, it's a, it's a sport of delayed gratification, you know, and you have to be okay with waiting, which is really counterculture to today. Kids are trained to get instant gratification and it's a great life lesson, you know, when we can teach that to kids through athletics at the same time, it's a much tougher sell than it was 20 years ago. So what are the leading indicators that an incoming freshman will contribute and improve year over year? Ooh, I don't know if I figured that one out yet. Generally, the ones that I know are going to contribute right away as a freshman are the kids who I know, you know, whether you know, from their training they've shared with me or what their coach has shared with me, have already done a lot of threshold and tempo work and they're really good at it. Some kids, that's just their bread and butter. Those kids, most of the time, they're going to be able to come at, you know, run 6K for women or 8K or 10K for men on the grass pretty well right away. But also there's a lot of really talented kids that have never trained like that and it's going to take a few years of aerobic development for them to be able to be really proficient in those areas. But you, you can't really be successful as a college cross-country runner if you're not hitting those areas over and over and over again. You know, so the kids that come from programs where I know they've done a lot of that, usually they're going to be much better out of the gate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that long-term, you know, some of these other kids aren't going to surpass them because, you know, we're all kind of like Play-Doh, you know, we're we're pliable and some people are just more pliable than others, you know, with workload, you know, going from four hours a week of running to by the time you're senior, a senior, maybe 11 hours a week. Some kids have a gap of five or six hours. They, that's really all they can handle. And then Noah Lutz is a good example. Noah was a local kid from modern day high school. I think he ran 945 in high school, ended up running 2940 something for 10K senior year. Noah had no speed. I think his lifetime PR in the mile in college was 427, but he ran 442 pace for a 10K. He was just an aerobic monster. I mean, he would he would do his long runs, usually around six flat pace, 
which for a lot of our kids is way too fast, unless we're specifically targeting, you know, like a marathon pace or tempo, tempo type of effort, or sometimes we'll do long runs in thirds, you know, where it's easy, moderate tempo. But Noah could run six minute pace and his heart rate would be 140. You know, he just had this left ventricle as big as your fist, you know, that just boom, boom. That was his gift. He had no speed. He just had this motor, you know, so he was pretty good in cross right away. I think he ran sub 25 as a redshirt freshman on the grass, but didn't have the high school credentials. So it, he, he, he was a walk on that ended up being a pretty high scholarship guy pretty quickly. But Noah's big gift was he could run 100 miles a week, week in and week out. And he did it on singles. He's probably the only athlete I've ever had run that kind of volume on seven runs a week. But that's what he preferred and it worked for him. So if I've learned anything, I've learned that there are no hard and set rules that just apply to everyone across the board. Well, we're going to take a break on our interview with Mike Hilliard. It's really good information and there's a lot more to go. So we're breaking this into two podcasts. Yep. We try really hard to keep our podcast under an hour because... A lot of times, especially when we have a guest, there's so much good information. We want to make sure everyone has time to digest it. Yeah. So we're going to share a scripture like we always do. And we were thinking about a scripture that ties back to the steeplechase. And as you recall, Mike was a national All-American in the steeplechase. It's from Acts chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. It really doesn't have anything to do with steeplechase, but I think you'll get the point. So this is a story about Peter, and it says, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. That's right. So God used Peter to heal this man who could have, who has never walked. And he's very excited. And I'm sure everyone around was pretty excited about that. Yeah, yeah. It also makes me think, too, is how much we take for granted with our sport. And we should not take it for granted. And on the days we're healthy and can get out the door, we ought to get out the door and use our gift to glorify the Lord. Yes, we should. We are blessed. Hey, did you know we have a Facebook group? I did know that. You did or you did not? I, I, I know it. Okay. Well, where is it? How can I join? Search for RYR Endurance Team on Facebook. We'd love to have you in our group. At RYR Endurance Team, we specialize in customized coaching. What is customized coaching? It's more than a training plan. It's a relationship. It's a partnership. So what are your goals? What are you training for? Contact us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or visit us on our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening.